Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. So if you ran the cross-sectional regression, it would look like reading to your kids is really important. If you did the within-family comparison, it would look like reading to your kids hurts them because of this reverse causality where parents read to the kid that's struggling more. But then once you fully kind of exploit this little natural experiment with birth spacing and miscarriages, then you see that reading to your kids is really important. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another episode of What We Can't Not Talk About, the podcast of the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture. Today, I'm welcoming back Professor Joseph Rice, Senior Fellow of the Austin Institute, who recently discussed with me on a previous episode the problems of mismatches in the marriage market. Good morning, Joe. Good morning. Thank you for being back with us. Yeah, thanks. It's great to be here. So about our previous episode, in case you missed me, I would just say that if you have a PhD and are a single woman, you should go ahead and listen to it. And if you're a man, it has a lot of good news for you. So you should also listen to it right now. There's no shortage of women for you, just so you know. For our new listeners, though, would you like, Joe, to just briefly introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. I'm Joe Price. I'm a professor of economics at Brigham Young University. I run a research lab there that has about 50 undergraduate students. It's one of my favorite things to do is work with students. And then at home, my wife, Emily, and I have seven kids. And I love being a father. I love being a coach and interacting with my kids. Yes, you. Okay, seven children the 50 more articles. And I forgot to mention last time, you're also a coach. Yes. So coach of what sports? I coach soccer, basketball, and baseball. And then if you count chess as a sport, I've coached chess for a lot of years. I still think, do you still have days that are made of 24 hours? Yes, I do. Yeah. I don't have a Hermione time changer. That would be awesome though. I would buy one in a second. Okay. Well, I will try to believe you and again, feel really bad about myself because I don't have any children. I mean, but, and I can't coach anyone, just keep a job. And that's already a lot. You mentioned something earlier though, which is probably good to say, you know, we talk a lot about marriage and families when we were talking earlier about the fact that it's actually easier to have seven children than to have two. Oh yeah. I mean, when people look at me with seven kids and say, that must be so hard. And I look at them with their two young kids. I say, no, like you are in the hardest point of your life right now. Like that moment when you just have the two young children, that is really hard. Now my kids range in age from seven to 21. And to be honest, they all pitch in. Mm -hmm. And I, I find like the stage of life that we're at right now to be so much easier than when we were, it was just my wife and I managing two little ones. Wow. So anyone that was listening, you know, this is another message. Don't be afraid. Have children as many as you can. Today, Joe, I wanted to talk with you about an article that you've discussed at the seminar that we had here for the students at the Austin Institute. It's another article that you have. It's still some experiments basically on things that affect family and child, children, and the way they develop. And in this case, in particular, is the effect of mother-child reading time on children's reading skills. Before we get into the actual topic of that article, you're an economist, but you're interested about family. Is there a story there? Is that a random interest? I've always loved studying the family. My wife was a marriage, family, and human development major. I took several classes with her while I was at BYU as an undergrad. And so when I got to my PhD, that's just what I wanted to study. I wanted to study the family. I worked with Liz Peters, which was great. My advisor was Ron Ehrenberg. He kind of loved me and supported me as a whole person, acknowledged me as a father. It's just really hard to study the family because we don't get to run experiments. Hmm. Well, th families. thankfully, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. 
But okay, so the basic, the studies, you know, the ones that probably I hope our audience at this point is familiar with is that married couples are wealthier, healthier, sister for children, sister for the parents. But what is particularly interesting about the study is you brought up an aspect that I must confess, you know, that's not probably not something that happened to me. So probably I feel a little <laughs> less smart now. But you studied the effect of mother-child reading time. So if your mom did read to you, what does that mean for you? And you mentioned at the beginning of this article that there's a lot that has been studied about it. But tell us something more. Yeah, it's actually surprisingly hard to study. You think it would be really obvious and easy to examine whether a mother reads to her child if it helps them do better in school, maybe do better on tests or other academic measures. But there's actually two major problems that you have to overcome. One is if you just look at cross-sectional data, then the types of women who read to their children are just different in a lot of other ways. And so it might be those other things that are causing the improvement in child outcomes. The other is even if you just looked within a family, so you're going to like hold the mother constant, and then you say, well, which of the kids did she read to more? Mm. Well, parents engage in compensatory behavior, which is the kid that's struggling more to read might be the one that gets read to more. And so then when you go to do your analysis, it might actually make it look like reading to your kid actually makes them worse. But that was just because the mother was basically responding to a child who was struggling more at reading themselves. She was reading because there was a need there. Exactly. So and, Okay. Yeah. And we call that reverse causality. That's another major problem in economic research. So how did you develop your study and how did you overcome these obstacles if you did? Yeah. So, I mean, the idea would be some experiment that randomized mother-child reading time across children. And there's actually some really exciting work that is trying to do field experiments. But what we did, this was with Ariel Khalil, we exploited a natural pattern within families. Mm. So one of my first papers as an economist was actually showing that parents spend a lot more time reading to their firstborn child than their secondborn child. And this gap is larger when kids are spaced further apart. Why is that? Why is that? Yeah. It's because on any given day, you spend about the same amount of time with all of your kids. And then as your kids get older, you spend less time reading and talking and more time driving and watching television together. Hmm. So when you're that oldest child, you kind of get this like higher level of parental investment that changes as the kids in the family get older. And it's interesting because a parent might say, oh, I spend the same amount of time with both my kids because on any given day that is true. But, but it's with, a different way. It's a different because what you want to do is compare the firstborn when they were say five to when the secondborn when they were five. And that's when the big gaps start to pop up. So in my earlier paper, I found that the birth order gap was about 3,000 hours. And so, you know, that's like a year and a half of full-time parenting work that the firstborn gets that the secondborn gets. And it's all coming from this change in parental investment as kids get older. So I was wondering when I was reading your study whether this, you know, your curiosity of saying how much does the mother-child time affect the results of the child if you wanted to study that because you were looking at your children and wondering, you know, why is she so much smarter than him? It's like, what did we do right with one and what did we not do with the other one? I mean, Was that part of it? Yeah, you're super close. It was just a different question. So I had, I had three kids at the time. This was in grad school. And one of my advisors said to me, well, don't you know about the quantity quality trade-off? And the quantity quality trade-off is this Gary Becker result that as you have more kids, the quality of your children will drop. So there's this kind of trade-off between the quantity and quality. And she was just asking me if I knew about this trade-off. And it got me thinking of whether that trade-off actually made sense because mm. I went back home that night and I started watching how I parented. And I, I realized that actually almost every time that I was parenting one of my children, 
I was giving that same parenting to multiple kids. So it wasn't like I had a pie and I was like splitting the pie between the kids. It was more like I had a pie and each piece could be given. Like when we ate dinner together, it's not like I excluded anyone. Or when I read books at night, I didn't exclude anyone. So it made me realize that this like pie metaphor maybe wasn't the right way to think about it. And so that got me thinking more about, you know, what does cause these differences? And right about this time, Sandy Black and co-authors came out with a paper showing that it, it really is probably birth order, not family size that was causing the differences in outcomes. That's what got me thinking about what could explain the birth order effect. And it was coming through that lens of me as a father thinking about how much time was I spending with my kids and was that changing over time? Okay. And so how about this specific study? How was it conducted and what did you find? Yeah. So in this one, we're using the National Longitudinal Survey of Youth, fantastic data set that followed kids over a super long period of time. Mm. And the amazing thing about it is you get multiple children per family. Mm. You have information about how much time the mother read to the children each year. You have their reading and math test scores. And you have information about whether the mother had a miscarriage. Now, it might not be obvious right away why miscarriage is important. But what miscarriage does is it creates extra birth spacing that's unrelated to the decision of the parents. So this would be a parent who was planning to maybe have children two years apart. But because of the miscarriage, maybe they have them three years apart. And that extra birth spacing is actually what gives you the leverage to study the differences in parental time because the birth order gaps in time get bigger when the kids are spaced further apart. Okay, so you took the data that you have from there and what did you find? Yeah, so we found that actually if you ran the cross-sectional regression, it would look like reading to your kids is really important. If you did the within-family comparison, it would look like reading to your kids hurts them because of this reverse causality where parents read to the kid that's struggling more. But then once you fully kind of exploit this little natural experiment with birth spacing and miscarriages, then you see that reading to your kids is really important. Really important. And when should it start? Well, I, I mean, I think it should start in utero. I mean, now we're kind of getting beyond what I can do with the data. I started reading to my kids in utero. I don't know if it helps, but at least it got me in the practice as a parent of reading to my kids every day. Okay. Yeah, no, and I'm, I'm asking this seriously, meaning because yeah. when, when I read the study, I realized that we were talking about reading to toddlers. We're not talking about reading when he's five. We're talking about the very first year. So I'm sorry for my brother who's oh, listening. No, and yeah. I think he might be late already. because. But, but let's be clear, reading shouldn't stop at age five. It shouldn't stop at age 10. It shouldn't even stop at age 15. No, no, but when should it start? Oh, it should Question. start in utero. <laughs> like, okay. I mean, my first child was a high-risk birth, and so he spent three days in the NICU, and I was just sitting there next to him in the NICU reading to him. I don't know if it's the word flow, but I, I think like my love language has always been time. And one of the ways we can show that time and love to our children is, is saying, I'm going to be here with you and read to you. So there is that. So, and in fact, that's something you discuss in the study. I don't know if it's one of the limits that maybe it's not just the reading, it's the fact that by reading, you are spending time with them. Yeah, it could be that. And that's why really when we think about maternal reading time, it's really maybe just a proxy for what we would think of as high quality parental investments. Where I think of like, you know, we didn't have questions about talking or helping with homework, but I think of those as really important. I mean, the other thing is we're communicating to kids that we love books. It's creating a pleasure connection in their brain mm. related to books that might create a lifelong habit of reading. And, you know, as a college professor, it's it's hard to imagine that like reading isn't like absolutely interconnected with your ability to do well in school. Yeah. So would you argue for also, I mean, is there any you know, experiment that could be made about the way in which reading has changed, you know, reading with a Kindle versus reading on a book. Yeah. So my co-author Ariel Khalil has been doing some really interesting experiments with Kindles or things like them, because 
there you can actually experimentally manipulate. They give kids iPads and these iPads can read to them. And so this creates this really interesting experiment about is really reading to your children about the word flow? Or is or is it something else? Wow, um, this and, is fascinating. So I think in the future we're gonna know so much more about why reading to your kids. And it's really a debate about like, you know, are audiobooks the same as parental reading? Are audiobooks the same as reading on paper? I just think there's so much that we're gonna know about why reading is so powerful that we'll be able to do through these kind of experimentation. So there's one thing we often say here is that usually science shows that what we always believe to be true is actually true. So my gut feeling is that the audiobook and mom reading is not going to be the same. Yeah, I know. Well, this is what I love. I was talking to my daughters, they're seven and 10 about scientific discoveries. And I shared one of my scientific discoveries, which was the birth order gap in parental time. And my daughter's like, oh, well, you could have learned that just by asking any (laughs) seven-year-old. So (laughs) so I think like, you know, a lot of times we discover things in science that are kind of intuitive, but actually like proving them with evidence is sometimes really Really yeah, hard. no, no, yeah. and it helps. In an age of confusion, it absolutely helps to have science defending the idea that reading to your children is actually good and good for them. Maybe even good for your marriage because, you know, you stop looking at Twitter and getting anxious for the things that happen there and you just, you know, relax with a good book for children. An interesting thing that you brought up was that there are better... So what we're arguing here, what, what the study shows is that if the mom spends time reading to the child every day, like there is a, an increase in the results of what skills of the child. Yeah, so this is where we start to hit some limitations. So we're kind of at the mercy of what outcomes the NLSY has. Mm. And the two outcomes that we use are their reading test scores and their math test scores. So think of these as measures of cognitive performance. Now, granted, what I would hope is if we're reading to our kids, there'd be maybe more compassion Maybe they'd be more kind or service-oriented. Those aren't things that we could measure with the NLSY data that we were using. And how about, I remember recall that the maths results are not really affected by it. Is that correct? Well, that was the nice thing is you can actually show that the effect is much larger for reading test scores than it is for math test scores. And this is a nice way to think about the study is if you thought it was operating through maybe some other parental characteristic, then you might imagine that that parental characteristic would both improve reading and math. Whereas when you're looking directly at reading to your children, then you'd expect it to have a much bigger effect on reading rather than math. And so actually that difference between those two is actually like helping you establish a stronger case that it's coming from the maternal reading and not from some other parenting characteristic. And not from the socioeconomic status or how much conversation there is in the house. And and one thing, I think you mentioned that, that the limitation was you didn't take into account father time or- They didn't even ask, they didn't even ask the question. (laughs) I mean, it only asks about maternal reading time. And it's because sadly, if you look in the American Time Use Survey, you can actually see how much time mothers read to their children and how much time fathers read to their children. And there's a big gender gap there. But I don't know why. Okay, so I come from a different family. I think my brother was the one that read to me. But, you know, even in movies or like from my friends who had a father in the house, like it's usually the dad, the bad time stories. Like the dad, right, is the one that, it's aspirational. So, I mean, or I mean, I think it's where we want to be. Okay. I just think when you look in the data, sadly, fathers don't read to their children nearly as much as but mothers you did. do. I, mean, I loved just... it. I love books. I mean, I read 20 books a month. It's it's just been a, my mother. So wait, 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 yeah. wait. You coach, you have seven children, you wrote 50 published paper, you teach, and you read 20 books per month? Yeah, I guess, 
I mean, we could back up and there's this Abraham Lincoln quote, like, you know, if I were going to saw the log, I'd spend, you know, 50% of the time sharpening it. I think of the books as maybe like part of why those other things work out. I just think that there's something special about books that convey compassion, they convey understanding, they allow you to put yourself in someone else's shoes. And I think that just being part of a book culture, Mm -hmm. like helps you do all those other things in a maybe more efficient way, maybe a more compassionate way. I mean, I know that I've read lots of books on coaching and I've enjoyed having a master coach. It's almost like I get to have a conversation with them through the book. The last book you read that you would recommend to our audience? Oh, last book. Oh man, there's been so many. Actually, I loved Digital Minimalism by Cal Newport. Okay. Is that, yeah, the same? He's the one that wrote Deep Work. Yeah, Deep Work is fantastic. So I would definitely start with Deep Work, fantastic book. But Digital Minimalism, I think, is where he helps you know how to achieve Deep Work. Basically, turn off your phone, turn off your laptop, things like that. Is that? Yeah, yeah, that's probably the easiest way to summarize it. But basically, like being intentional about it. And actually he has this great comment about the Amish community in which sometimes we think of them as anti-technology, but really they actually, they decide they're really intentional about which technology to embrace. And I think as parents, that's what we have to do. We have to think about like, is it, does this thing belong in our home? And if so, how are we going to let it not create the negative effects that it can? Yeah. Take control basically of our children. One thing about, you know, policy advice. So books, for families, you know, providing books. And also I would say, you know, baby showers, children's books at this point are absolutely recommended because if you say that you should start in uterus, you know, don't, you don't need so many toys. Maybe good children books would be the right present. I'm curious, do you think, what is your personal opinion about the age appropriateness of books? Because I, I come from a family where classics were just classics and that you can always read them. Would you agree? Do you think that, you know, that's another topic for another episode or? Well, I mean, the nice thing is that some of the classics can be summarized down into a smaller, like I was just reading an, an adaptation of Heidi with my children. And the story of Heidi is so powerful along many dimensions that even if your kids aren't old enough to maybe read the original version, getting the gist of the story actually gives you a lot of the benefits So that would be one example. The other thing is, I think this is also why parents need to continue to read to their kids as they get older. I haven't been fantastic at this with my younger kids, but with my oldest kids, I read to them until they were 14, 15, Mm. because there's always going to be a book that's just beyond their ability to read. And so if you continue to read to them, you can be reading Lord of the Rings at some point, or you could read the Will of Time series. There's always going to be that book that they're not quite ready for themselves. Or you can take a book like John Green which I love, but has a lot of inappropriate content in it. And I can be my own like little, we can turn that into a discussion point as a, so in this case, it was my daughter that wanted to read it. And I was just like, why don't I just read it to you? And then at least I can be there with you and we can navigate some of these topics together. Beautiful. Yeah. So yeah. And then the reading time becomes time to build relationship with your children so that then when they become older and they really have serious problems, they know that they can come to you and talk to you. Wow. Well, thank you, Joseph, for another great presentation of another great research. And I look forward to the next one that you can present on our podcast. Thank you again for your time, for your studies. I look forward to having you here again. Thanks. Thank you all for listening to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Please share it with your friends. Please give us a five-star rating. 
and please donate so we can do even more.